and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 16, Easter Special 2023. Hello, welcome back to the podcast and it's the Easter holidays, which means that we're doing one of our slightly odd ones. We are. We made it. (laughs) Well, yes, we haven't because we're recording way earlier. But yes, we will have made it. We will have made it. You've made it, listener. Well done. Well done, listener. Our one listener. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners. (laughs) Yes. You've made it. Um, And we've got our usual fare three things each i think the remit is was supposed to be that these were, were supposed to be light yeah <laughs> contributions I, I was thinking about this because of the ones that i've picked i mean actually looking back through our easter episodes i think the easter one is a bit more of a mixed bag sometimes we bring some quite heavy fare to the table i think it's more that we we bring interesting thought-provoking stuff that's perhaps not quite as fluffy as our christmas offerings yeah i think so that's well definitely the case this time it is the case this time i i'm going to let you in to my approach to this I have a number of books this is probably the case with anybody in education that you you buy intending to to read them but they end up sort of languishing on your on your uh, on your bookshelf so I thought right rather than try to mine google for my content I would go to the books that I've had on my shelves and try and find something in those which I duly did. So this first offering from me comes from Generative Learning in Action. It's from that John Cat in Action series of books. Rosenshine's Principles in Action is um, probably the most common one Um, and this book has been written by Zoe and Mark Enser. The book is based on a theory of learning that suggests pupils create understanding of what it is to be learnt through a process of selecting information, organising it and then integrating it into what they already know. So it sort of broadly fits in with a constructivist theory of learning, schema building. And it draws primarily this book on the work of Logan Fiorella and Richard E. Mayer in their 2015 book, Learning as a Generative Activity, Eight Learning Strategies that Promote Understanding. One of the four, the first four that they found of those eight to be most effective in terms of generative learning is learning by imagining. There are a number of them that they go, basically each chapter of the book takes one of these particular strategies. Um, There's learning by summarising, learning by mapping, by drawing, self-testing, self-explaining, teaching and acting. But the one that I'm going to focus on is learning by imagining. They give you the stats on this. So out of 22 studies, 16 of them had positive results and they generated an effect size um, of 0.0. 0.65. So it was in a rank order of eight, it was th- number three in terms of effect size. Now, obviously, these strategies all had slightly different numbers of studies on which they were basing the effect size and the result, but this was three of, of, of the four top ones that I'm going to dip into now. I don't know whether we need to say anything about effect size, Tom, do um, we? I'll lever myself up from my chair to just Go say that John Hattie is the the kind of guy who's explained this really well. He uses effect size because he's good at this whole meta-analysis thing of crunching things together. Basically, you can take lots of studies that use different measurement methods, different units, and crunch them together to kind of get one number that reflects them. I think what you need to know really is that 0.4 is a sort of fairly average kind of effect size for teaching. 0.2 is kind of what the pupils would achieve in terms of development if they were just noodling along by themselves. So 0.65 is pretty good. Yeah, I've had to correct myself, actually. It's fourth out of the rank order of, of eight that they put together but still you know pretty pretty high and pretty good as Tom says in terms of effect size so what is learning by imagining then close your eyes Tom okay imagine the I term <laughs> audio listeners <laughs> imagine the term generative learning what images come to mind would it be very niche if I said an enormous foam paperclip <laughs> <laughs> that may need a bit of 
Are you gonna are you gonna speak ill of the dead now? No, I'm not. No, the, the mighty Ken Robinson, wonderful. Uh, but yeah, he he talks about creativity, doesn't he? And he says that small children can come up with more uses for a paperclip than boring old adults, because they would suggest that you know the paperclip could be huge and made of foam and that sort of thing. So, hmm. Yeah, stuck in my mind a bit there. So sorry for that niche answer. That probably wasn't helpful. Okay, now give me a proper answer. What comes into mind when you when you hear the term generative learning? Um, did you say it had to be an image? Because you know I'm not big on pictures. I mean, <laughs> or just a response. A response. I think generative learning, a thing that is good but requires quality control and sometimes doesn't have it applied enough. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean... This is the opener to this chapter and they ask, do you have a picture of something generating? Oh, I don't have a picture of anything. This is my problem. Yeah, but this is that, I suppose this, this, this limitation of this approach that you know, we'll talk about the limitations. The book talks about the limitations, but they say, you know, do you have a picture of something generating, a plant or something coming to life or growing? What images connect to this central idea is what they ask. They say this is using imagining as a generative learning strategy. The strategy asks learners to create mental images of their learning, providing prompts and ideas as necessary to support the process. As with all uh, the generative learning strategies, students are required to follow three processes of generative learning. They select the most relevant areas of their learning, they organise the information into a mental image and integrate this alongside prior knowledge held within this schemata in order to create a new mental picture. They go on to say, as Christine Council says, Christine Council is uh, a teacher and a researcher, but her subject is history. She says, when discussing ideas relating to core and hinterland, students will be able to memorise key facts about medieval life, but they won't understand, let alone sustain, precise, flexible and useful recall of those takeaways without images, landscapes, stories, varied details that give you a sense of medieval peasantness. You need to see, you need to colour for mental models to form. Imagining is one way we can support students to achieve those mental models. Now, going on in the book chapter, they talk about how to use imagining in the classroom. And they say that in a 1993 study by Gambrell and Jowitz, cited by Fiorella and Mayer, the authors asked a group of fourth graders to read a 925 word story while making as many pictures as they could in their heads about the things they read, the imagining group. The study found that the students instructed to use the imagining greatly outperformed the control group on a free recall test and cued recall test. So it was just quite nice to, to read about the power of imagination in the process of learning. Some final things to say is that there are some potential limitations that they point to in the chapter. They do say, as I mentioned a moment ago, that it works best when students have some prior knowledge of a topic. And I think that times with this thing about the paperclip, just aimlessly imagining is uh, not necessarily going to reap any learning benefits. Um, so you need to think carefully about how and when you use it because there's not necessarily going to be a concrete outcome to it. So they might not complete the task if there is no concrete outcome. So you've got to think about the how and the why you're you're encouraging them to, to use imagination as a generative strategy. So yeah, that's my first offering. <laughs> hmm. It's interesting kind of just being purely personal about this now. I've always been, it's it's brought to light to me there, this kind of weird relationship between, you know, being creative and being generative and all that sort of stuff. It always seems to be couched in visual terms, doesn't it? Yeah. It's always the person that does the massive weird mind maps and scribbles things on huge pieces of paper and all that. And of course, as I sort of hinted at at the beginning there, I am one of these weird people that does does not have any kind of visual stuff going on in my head. I mean, you know, not not to kind of go down the whole visual learner nonsense, because obviously we know that's nonsense, but I, I'm i uh, practically face blind, <laughs> notoriously practically face blind, and it's caused me all sorts of havoc when I'm teaching. And, you know, apologies to anybody who I've just walked past and completely blanked. It's not because I'm massively rude. It's probably because I didn't recognise you. I mean, I thought someone else was you once, didn't I, on you campus? Did. And so... This idea that, you know, to, to do that, you have to be visualising things. I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure the study was great and everything, but that totally wouldn't work for me because, mm. I mean, we were discussing this the other day, weren't we? And you were saying you, you heard an interview with somebody who's a bit similar to me and they were asked to 
visualize a sphere in their head and couldn't do it and i came back a couple of days later didn't i, I said i tried to do that and i couldn't do it they had a fantasia that <laughs> yeah. was that's what we we remembered it to or i i don't know what i was calling it um <laughs> i can't remember it was something i think else, it's it? a fantasia yeah. um but yeah no you, you're right it is interesting i mean it, it, we could go down a huge rabbit hole here but it does make me wonder you know when you're imagining what's going on in your mind i don't know really i mean <laughs> it, lots of sounds and facts i think like i can remember facts um you know i'm the one that remembers names out of our team you're the one that does the faces isn't it i I just (laughs) i i can remember stuff i can remember facts and things and i can hear things in my head but i absolutely really just see very very little in my head Mm, mm. and so yeah i suppose you know no one of these strategies is going to be a silver bullet um but i think what i wanted to do and what i was sort of shored up by was that there was a strong case for imagination in learning, something that maybe has been more aligned to sort of progressive approaches to teaching and learning, but actually can be within this umbrella of, of generative strategies for learning can be quite helpful. Yeah, I think there's a load of interesting stuff we could talk about there about, you know, creativity and slightly annoying people and quality control and stuff like that. So yeah, loads, loads to think about there. There we go. All right. Uh, now I've got a big one for us now. So you might need to settle in with a bit of a cuppa because I may be here for some time. I've got a podcast recommendation. I'm going to start with a podcast recommendation, which also leads on to another podcast recommendation, which is why this is going to be quite large. As we always mention, we're quite quite fans of podcasts. A lot of podcasts tend to just be two people discussing stuff into a microphone, you know, exhibit A, <laughs> being in your ears right now, I guess. But there are many other kinds of podcasts. And some podcast producers i suppose are more interested than others in the production and the quality and the storytelling and all that sort of thing and i discovered a podcast it's now called sound school but it used to be called how sound and it's produced by well i found it on a website called transom.org which is a website to do with producing public radio and audio storytelling and that sort of stuff it's full of really interesting resources presented by rob rosenthal it it covers a huge range of topics to do with audio storytelling producing audio journalism that kind of thing Um, he's got a number of episodes where he pulls out some really interesting examples of the podcast genre including ones which go beyond just two people having a chat in front of a microphone, uh, looks at how people tell stories, how they do documentaries, how they edit down hours and hours of audio. There's some amazing examples of bits of audio on there that will absolutely bring you up short. And he often gives credit where it's due to producers who've done amazing work in the audio storytelling medium. So I would strongly recommend having a listen to Sound School. He's got a couple of episodes that he calls Darts and Laurels, which is, I think, an idea he's borrowed from somewhere else where he gives a a laurel to a podcast that does something really well. And there are some fantastically weird and wonderful examples of things on there that are completely away from the norm. And he also gives darts to podcast producers, audio producers who kind of do stupid or predictable things or don't look after their sound quality and that kind of thing. So I'll give you an example of a dart from Rob Rosenthal from a, a piece of podcast production here we go moving on to another story but still feeling a little grouchy why add sound effects to stories why many celebrities choose one issue you have chosen many why i have a hard time saying no i'm gonna need you all to get fired up right now okay i love my country enough to know that it's broken did you catch that I love my country enough to know that it's broken. And then the sound is something breaking. That sound is absolutely unnecessary. I love my country enough to know that it's broken. My issues of growing up in the business really didn't surface until I had my first child. Wait, did you catch that? It's like the sound of a broom handle swung hard through the air. Really? Must the producers add little tchotchkes of sound? It turns the production into a cartoon, and it suggests what's being said isn't enough. It needs to be augmented with sound effects. If that's the case, if the quotes in that montage aren't good enough on their own, well, then find other quotes. And you were laughing in that because it's, it, it's brilliantly detailed, isn't it? But what a stupid thing to do. 
Yeah, and it's almost one of those things that until you point it out, I'm probably not really that aware of it. But now that you've pointed it out, now that that <laughs> that guy's pointed it out, it is bizarre, isn't it? And totally unnecessary. It is. It's the kind of infantile nonsense that you get on telly quite a lot and that we could really do without, I think, in, in the audio world. He's brilliant at pulling apart how podcasts are put together and how you do amazing stuff because it's quite hard to do that sometimes. Yeah, and I... I, I, I got to say, I, I am a fan of original music on podcasts, particularly when stories are being told. I think it can be quite engaging and heighten what's being said. But those sound effects are just dire, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah. And he does a lot of that kind of stuff. I would strongly recommend having a listening, a listen to the Sound School podcast. They're not all kind of darts and laurels type things with rants and, and praise. That Sometimes they take really deep dives into into subjects. But yeah, it's, it's good to make you think a little bit. Mm, absolutely. It's made me think. Yeah, so in the spirit of that, I've got one for us to have a listen to today. And I'm going to kind of say what I think is brilliant about it and, you know, put some potential questions about it as well. And this is quite an obscure one, I think. I might be doing this a real disservice. It might have a very wide listenership, but I don't think it does. It's a podcast called Radio Moments Conversations. And what the the person who's put this together has done is get hold of some absolutely massive names from the world of radio and he's interviewed them uh, about their lives and how they got into radio and their careers in radio and what they achieved and my absolute favourite one of these is an interview with the uh, legendary journalist John Humphreys. Hey! Yeah John Humphreys who retired from the presenting the Today programme. I think he presented it for you know, over 30 years or something like that. He was, certainly, he was there for a very, very long time since, since the mid-80s. And he got a bit of a reputation, didn't he, for being a kind of crazy Rottweiler of, yeah. of inter- interviewing. Formidable. He's yeah. a Cardiff boy. He was a Cardiff boy. He was born in, in Splot, mm. only a couple of miles away from where we're sitting now. And that was certainly uh, something that... that played a big part in the way that he approached his career but he got known for some very very combative interviews I mean I distinctly remember one during the Iraq war when he it it sounded like they were actually going to punch each other at one point I've not been able to find the audio of that it seems to have disappeared it was at the height of the row between the BBC and the government Um, probably his most famous scalp just before finishing was when he he took down his own boss didn't he Mm. (laughs) sent you that George Entwistle who I think managed 54 days or something as the director general of the BBC he was brought down by the, the Savile scandal and specifically a, an erroneous report about a, an ex-Tory minister um, on Newsnight. And, and John Humphreys interviewed his own boss first thing in the morning. Um, and by that evening, that boss was, was gone. <laughs> finished his career off takes no prisoners he took absolutely no prisoners and I think probably by the end of his time um, as a journalist he became a bit of people saw him as a bit of a caricature people saw him as a bit of this sort of grumpy angry kind of person who just sort of shouted at politicians and was kind of really bad tempered but actually when you listen to this podcast episode you get a real insight into into kind of what makes him tick and i'm going to play an extract from this it's long it's getting on for five minutes this this extract and it is also a very hard listen i'm going to kind of warn everybody now this is a hard listen john humphreys was the first reporter on the scene of the abavan disaster now for anybody listening from outside of wales the abavan disaster is a it's a thing that weighs very heavily on the national consciousness here in Wales you know we, we all know what it is over here uh, if you're not from around these parts you you might know the name but you might not know the details I mean basically in a mining village up near Merthyr uh, a huge coal tip slid onto a school and killed an enormous number of children inside this school in in the 60s and it was a huge disaster and as I said it's something that you know everybody kind of knows about and um, I, I found out the other day actually my great great aunt was a teacher in that school but she'd retired by the time that it actually happened because I've got family from up there but John Humphreys was uh, the first reporter on the scene of the Abavan disaster and in this extract he describes uh, what he saw and the impact that it had on the whole of the rest of his career so there's uh, a little bit of strong language in here and some very distressing content um, so brace yourselves but I think it's worth having a listen. I remember being in the TWW newsroom and uh, seeing 
on the uh, telex machine, a, a ticker tape machine, that, that there'd been a, a coal tip, a, a slid in the, uh, in the valleys, in the Merthyr Valley. I knew the Merthyr Valley very well because I'd worked for the Merthyr Express. And uh, mostly the coal tips just slid and somebody got injured occasionally and, and that was about it. But I knew the village where it had happened. The village, of course, was Aberfan, Merthyr Vale. And I knew there was a school in the village and, and the tip was above the village, on the hillside above the village. I drove up there and uh, when I got there, I saw the sort of scene that nobody should ever see in their lives and it was it was pretty much beyond description I did describe it of course I had to I was the first reporter on the scene that the village the centre of the village where the school was had disappeared I, I took me a little while to comprehend it because instead of just driving off the main road down through the through the valley and, and down into the village you couldn't do that because the road no longer existed down into the village Instead, there was this absolutely monstrous, monstrous heap of uh, waste, colliery waste. This is where the school should have been. Standing on top of it were miners. They'd been down the pit, which was just very close, and heard a great roaring noise. And they knew, even though they were below ground, uh, a long way below ground, but they knew exactly what it was and they rushed back to the surface. And when I got there, they, they were there on top of this great mound with picks and shovels, couldn't use machinery because of the danger of collapsing stuff into the school, but most, much of the school, most of the school had already been crushed. But they were digging for their own children. It was the most unimaginably awful scene you can imagine. They were, these were strong men, and their, their faces were still black from the coal dust obviously uh, and there were uh, white streaks down them from the sweat and the tears because uh, they were obviously they were digging for their own children every so often one of the miners would, would shout for silence and we'd all go completely quiet just stand there not moving because they thought they might have heard a child crying out sometimes they did and I saw one little girl being rescued. She was, uh, yeah, she was about nine, I suppose. But mostly, they uh, they didn't rescue children. They found their bodies, and uh, over the next few days, they'd retrieved 116 dead children and 28 adults. It had a, a profound effect on me. I mean, I did appalling. To, to suggest that, <laughs> that that's why it was important. It was important because endless numbers of families had their lives destroyed, and I didn't. I was just an observer. So to say it had a profound effect on me is pretty grotesque. But what it, it did do to me as a youngster, a young journalist, was it demonstrated to me that authority must be challenged all the time because that dreadful, dreadful disaster need not have happened if the National Coal Board, who were in charge of the deep mines in Britain in those days, had listened to what the miners in Aberfan had told them when they decided to build that tip some years earlier. And, of course, the coal board lied. They'd insisted that they'd not been warned that it mightn't be a place, and so on. And of course, they, they were just, they lied through their teeth. And Lord Robins, the bastard who ran the National Coal Board, Lord Robins, dear God in heaven, Lord Robins, he, uh, I watched him lying in, 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 at the inquiry. Unfortunately for Robins and the rest of them, they had. They'd had letters, and their copies of the letters came to light. So what it told me was that authority is not to be trusted. My father was right all those years ago. And I think that insight into what makes probably one of the one of the more famous journalists of the last few decades tick, I think, was very, very instructive for me because it's so easy to think of him just as a kind of shouty, bad-tempered political interviewer. But he, he learnt 
a huge lesson on that day and it kind of was clearly resonating with him really for the rest of his career in terms of the way that they actually put that thing together i mean it's nearly nearly an hour long and one of the nicest touches about it is there's clearly somebody asking the questions in these episodes with these these famous radio people but he's cut himself out and so you don't get anybody else in these conversations you just get this sort of monologue uh, by the person concerned and i think the sort of self-effacing way that the producer of this just gets out of the way and lets the story speak for itself is is a really good decision actually i think it's helped also by the fact that john humphreys with his kind of bbc upbringing and training is very very lacking in the sort of histrionics while he's telling this absolutely horrendous story about i mean he was a very very young man when this happened but he he kind of keeps it very very factual but you can hear at the end that he's he's extremely angry by the end but it, it he kind of saves it for the end and it adds all the more power to it in terms of the kind of questions i would ask i mean i i'd have liked to have heard an edit without the music i'm not sure about the music it, it it may work, it may not. I'd be interested to know whether the person that put this together tried an edit without the music or perhaps with the music dropping out a little bit earlier. But I just think that's an incredible piece of audio. It is an incredible piece of audio. And I think anybody either from Wales or, or outside of will be reflecting on similar situations that sadly came to pass in their own context and they'll, they'll be able to sort of understand how how incredibly awful that moment in our our history was i mean it's it's got me reflecting on the people of grenfell who repeatedly warned about the cladding and 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 the issues with uh with with the flats there and and i and it, it helps me to understand as you say you know why humphreys so doggedly goes after people in positions of authority and doesn't let them off the hook um rightly so i think yeah definitely it gives you it gives you an insight i mean the whole podcast series radio moments moments conversations i mean most of it is is really lovely and really light and really nice um there are loads of really nice stories in there as well but it's very very well produced and i think the decision of the person that put this together david lloyd to actually get out of the way because there can often be a bit of an ego thing going on, can't there, with the with the sort of presenter, mm. that he just gets out of the way. And these people just speak, apparently uninterrupted, for about an hour, I think is a really, really nice choice. Yeah, it is a nice choice. It's storytelling, people, you know, telling their human stories. They're some of my favourite podcasts and formats that give a lot of space to the person telling their stories are ones that I often gravitate towards. It's a reason why I really love... Desert Island Discs because I think the all of the presenters of that over the over the years have been very very good at asking the right questions but also then giving the space to the to the person who is who is the guest speaker. So yeah, I'll certainly be listening to some of those episodes, Tom. And I think I don't know. I'm I think you'll find people are divided on the issue of music. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I you know I, I I can see what it's trying to do and I can I would have liked to listen to the edit without it. I, it did get me thinking as soon as that music kicked in actually, but I don't know. Maybe I'm a music person, so I'm uh, hyper aware of it. I think, but yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm sure the person concerned tried it various ways around, and that was the best way. But I, yeah, I'd be interested to experiment with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it got me thinking. I mean, you know, as a side point, linking to my previous contribution. Abavan, I think with a lot of drama teachers in Wales is a common topic and probably for several history teachers as well. Obviously, approach with caution and use with the right year group. But um, something that was quite powerful that I used to do with my year 11 GCSE students, we're talking sort of 15 year olds there, was to teach them and through various means of practical exploration through drama pedagogies explore Abavan and what happened in the disaster but to then culminate in a sort of imaginary inquiry whereby the pupils were tasked with imagining what sort of questions they might ask and put to Lord Robins. I, I did give them examples of transcripts from the inquiry and uh, just amazing really 
when they had the sort of the prior knowledge needed to really dig into it you know the 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 sort of questions that they came up with the extent to which they felt similar sentiments that Humphreys did or albeit you know from a from a a suitable distance um, from the topic but um, using imagination in that context had a very precise and specific purpose pedagogically and actually reaped some really interesting um, responses from from the pupils so yeah I mean obviously use that kind of sensitive content with with caution think very carefully about it and co-plan but audio like that could prove to be some really interesting stimulus material as well with maybe AS and A-level students. Lovely. So that was Radio Moments Conversations and before that, Sound School presented by Rob Rosenthal. Very nice. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, We've had a bit of a sort of social justice theme emerge in season five haven't we yes Anne Hodgson in a bat cave (laughs) yeah Anne Hodgson in a bat cave David Egan's poverty um episode and I think you and I Tom we we've been wanting to come back to the issue of how to incorporate meaningful curriculum opportunities on the PGC program to help student teachers understand poverty but understand their place in the process of addressing issues of poverty in the classroom and something that comes up a lot in the literature around poverty in education the teacher's role is um, the prevalence of deficit perspective and how this can be a real barrier to sort of teacher efficacy when working with pupils who are living in poverty. So my next contribution comes from a book that I bought when I knew we were going to be interviewing um, the eminent Professor Egan about this. Um, The book is Tackling Disadvantage Through Teacher Education uh, by Ian Thompson. And it's part of um, Ian Mentor's uh, edited series of books, Critical Guides for Teacher Educators, um, which I recommend anybody going and have a, a look and dipping into there are lots of really great great books in that series so obviously this is a pressing issue in education especially now in Wales where child poverty stats are I think a third highest in the UK I think northeast England is is top at the moment and London and then I think it's about 34 percent of children in Wales are living in poverty so obviously commitment to social justice and education is is something that we're we're trying to make sense of so coming back to this idea of deficit perspective and how to dislodge these entrenched views. This this was a point of interest for me. And when reading this book, I stumbled across uh, some research that they showcase, um, two sort of case studies in this book of two different approaches taken by two different t- teacher education programmes, one in Oxford, England, and one in Strathclyde in Glasgow. Um, So just quoting from the book here, research has shown that some in-service and pre-service teachers lack a critical perspective on the contexts of poverty and social disadvantage and may hold deficit views of students in poverty that suggest these students are unable to learn and need to be controlled. So those are the sort of unhelpful perspectives that these two universities were trying to sort of dislodge, challenge, so that these teachers could work in a much more positive way with with learners living in poverty. So we've got these two interesting case studies. The Oxford study involves students studying on a secondary IT course. The Strathclyde students were on a primary IT course. And the approaches taken to challenge the students' misconceptions were different and produced some really interesting results. The Oxford study investigated ways that secondary trainee teachers' views on poverty were subjected to challenge and change during an initial teacher education course in England. The methods involved pre- and post-course surveys that examine the trainees' beliefs and attitudes to poverty and educational attainment. The intervention involved a series of provocations such as course readings and a lecture on issues of poverty and educational achievement that was delivered to the whole cohort immediately after the first survey in order to challenge 
perceptions of poverty and educational attainment. So 40% of the cohort did not change their views despite the prompts, the provocations. So they concluded that simply by being told that this wasn't true, um, that there wasn't uh, a correlation um, between poverty uh, and pupils' educational outcomes, life choices and opportunities, had little to no impact. Strathclyde case study, different approach. So This study was designed to potentially reshape trainee teachers' beliefs about children who live in poverty and their own role in relation to challenging inequality. The data were collected over two years from two separate student cohorts and the entire data set consists of trainee teachers' written notes and reflections while working at a clinic. Now, this is the Strathclyde Literacy Clinic and it's an intervention that operates in schools based in one of the poorest parts of Glasgow. So this is an important point here is that these student teachers they were working outside of this school placement context um, and they were working directly with learners who live in poverty. So the data sources revealed a profound change in most of the trainees' understandings of, of life in disadvantaged families on how poverty impacts educational attainment in the context of schooling. And the evidence that emerged was that after an initial stage of dislocation and for some shock, one-to-one discussions between the trainee teachers and um, and child disrupted the trainee teacher's assumptions about schooling by being confronted with the perspective of the child. So you know, to sum this up in the conclusions of this chapter and the conclusions of these two case studies, the Oxford intervention shows that whilst IT courses can successfully challenge some preconceptions, there are significant limitations to simply telling trainee teachers what to believe. If trainee teachers hold entrenched deficit models that essentially blame the learner, then a disruption or dislocation through direct or reported experience may be required to change these seemingly fixed views. So they need to be engaging with pupils living in poverty and working closely with them. They say, however, hard to change does not necessarily mean impossible to change. And the Strathclyde Literacy Clinic findings suggest that direct experience of working with young learners from impoverished backgrounds in situations outside of normal teaching practice, backed up by reflections on literature, findings from other research studies can dislocate and change previous assumptions. Now, this really got me thinking, Tom, because you know, the Strathclyde intervention in particular, you know, it's not necessarily something that we do with our student teachers. They might, by luck of the draw, end up in a school that serves a community where there is a high percentage of socioeconomic disadvantage. But that's luck of the draw. And even then, based on these findings, that's not necessarily going to cause them to really think about the learner living in poverty's perspective. Um, And it's really just got me thinking that it's just not going to be enough, really, to do it from a university perspective. We've got to create opportunities for them to engage with these learners. Yeah, it reminds me of some literature I was reading not very long ago about the fact that the literature was suggesting that Initial teacher education only has quite a weak kind of ability to dislodge preconceptions which are already in place by the time people get to us. I mean, you know, this is potentially a pessimistic view I'm putting out here. But, you know, people people come into initial teacher education after a lot of experiences and a lot of education and they hold certain views and values and then you get a very short time to try and dislodge those or, or broaden those along with obviously doing loads of other stuff as well. And so it's a real challenge to to look at how you do that, because as you say, I mean, I know you said 34 percent, didn't you? I mean, David Egan said it had gone up. It's probably gone up since that book was, was published because he said it was more like 40, didn't he? So it, it makes it all the more important that we perhaps look at something that we can do about that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think it's going to take multiple... I take the word stakeholders, just multiple people to help find a way forward in putting together a quite a comprehensive approach to tackling deficit perspectives um, and to helping student teachers and teachers generally in their professional learning to develop their practice and address some of these quite sort of indelible perspectives, really. Yeah, it makes me think about good old Teach First, uh, now former Teach First. You know, there was a 
there was a kind of noble aim there, wasn't there, to sort of deal with inequality and poverty. And sometimes it worked. I mean, sometimes it went really, really well. And sometimes people got very, very spiky about these very, very shiny, ambitious people coming in. And sometimes those, you know, they they looked a little bit missionary sometimes when they came in. But but then when it worked, it really, really worked. Mm, mm, yeah. Really, really tricky. Yeah. And I, I think what they were asked to do as well was they, through their assignments, they were encouraged to consider the perspectives of these individual learners and and you know it was it was very much built in to every facet of their teacher education program so maybe there was a better chance there of them tackling these deficit perspectives yeah and with them now having departed wales i suppose there's a question about whether it needs to be more central in the kind of mainstream ite that we've now got left over mm-hmm. well and a shout out to uh, my favorite people outside we're now into our ninth month of the building works going on outside our window I think <laughs> <laughs> they fire them up every time so hello to the builders right <laughs> Moving on, but not very far, I would suggest. I mean, this. So, the, I love the way we we bring things completely independently of each other to these, and and yet we we often end up with weird little parallels. I think the social justice strand is continuing here a little bit, and also I was taken by the the word you used when you were talking about the. I think it was the Oxford one. You talked about them having provocations. Mm, <laughs> Are you going to do a provocation now, Emma? Okay. God. <laughs> Now, to provoke yeah. me to think. Uh, well, I'm going I'm to do a provocation. I'm possibly going to annoy some people with this. Uh, but I think it's interesting. Um, and I'm going to say straight away that I'm not I'm not 100% saying that this article is, you know, completely 100%. I totally agree with absolutely every single word of it. But maybe a bit like a bit like John Humphreys, but obviously for far less traumatic reasons. I quite like the idea that if everybody's saying something, you should you should question it. Uh, and I'm I rather like this article. I'm going to tell you what it's called, and I'm going to tell you why I like it. And it's all going to come together really, really neatly. Is in my own imagination. Here we go. Um, it's called language discipline and teaching like a champion. That's probably got a few hackles going up already. And it's by an author called Ian Cushing from Brunel University in London. Now, we've tried to get Ian on the podcast, but he wasn't able to come on. I tried to get him on when I read this article. I was so interested by it. Um, now, teaching like a champion for anybody, for the, for the one person under a rock that doesn't get that reference, uh, th- that will be a reference to Doug Lemoff's book, Teach Like a Champion, which is now in its 894th edition, I think. Isn't it? <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a very popular popular book and it's a very popular book for good reason and you know I, I would not want to uh, you know massively insult Teach Like a Champion because there are certain things that it does quite well I mean we, we talk about the complexities of teaching Teach Like a Champion can be very very handy because what it does is it, it distills quite complicated stuff into a sort of shared language isn't it it's got these sort of shorthands for things it codifies it yes. doesn't it yes and they're, they're sort of things so that you know you can say to your student teacher right do that and they know what it is and there's a kind of explanation of it. so it can be really really handy loads of schools are really fond of Teach Like a Champion Loads of schools have bookshelves absolutely groaning with Teach Like a Champion books. Some schools, as is always the way of schools, have started, you know, putting tick boxes on their <laughs> lesson plans as to which bit of Teach Like a Champion we're using today. Uh, but anyway, it's it's very popular. And therefore, of course, me being me, that means I want to give it a bit of a poke with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> because that's what I do. Um, Ian Cushing writes this article, Language Discipline and Teaching Like a Champion. And he is looking at... Well, a number of things. He's talking about some of the really sort of strongly disciplinarian approaches that are going on in some schools. I mean, particularly some of the inner city schools in London. I mean, Michaela is the one that everybody knows about. All this sort of no excuses stuff, all this sort of uber behaviour management sort of thing, all this slant, sit up, don't talk no group work no smiling. I mean, that's possibly going a bit far, but uh, all that sort of stuff. He's he's looking at it and he is a language specialist so he's looking particularly at it from a language point of view and what he does in the article is he goes through some specific examples of things that he sees in schools and where he feels that an attempt to manage behavior and i mean he's he's actually quite uncomfortable even with that but but an attempt to manage behavior is 
unexpectedly or perhaps in his view actually perhaps deliberately spilling out into a policing of pupils language and he he takes examples of rules that are up on on walls around these schools you know staff should model behavior no chewing gum standard english should be used at all times and he's kind of getting onto this thing about where the use of sort of standard spoken english and not using slang is something that gets rolled into the whole sort of school rules no gum tuck your shirt in type of thing and he's suggesting that perhaps there is an overt or not so overt policing of, let us say, a certain type of pupil, which he finds quite sinister, (laughs) needless to say. And he's suggesting that perhaps there is a sort of culture of surveillance and a culture of policing the language and policing the bodies of these pupils. And, you know, spoiler alert, he feels it's a it's a pretty bad thing and that it is it is perhaps um, working against a particular group of pupils or particular groups of pupils. Perhaps it would be poor pupils, perhaps it would be pupils from from black heritage or, or other ethnic minority heritages. And he's not very comfortable with it. And he absolutely kind of goes on one on it in this article. It's quite a polemical article. There are other authors who've done similar things. I mean, he zeroes in on Teach Like a Champion and he actually zeroes in at one point on a video uh, extract of somebody doing a Teach Like a Champion thing, which apparently is called Punch the Error, uh, which basically this teacher is correcting a a mistake in grammar that this pupil makes. And, and, you know, it's there's a something there in the way that the pupil is speaking. It makes it fairly abundantly clear that this is sort of a... Uh, a vernacular way of speaking from the black community and the author is very uncomfortable with it and he also asks why use such a violent metaphor for correcting the the pupil's mistake uh, of standard grammar and should you be doing it anyway Uh, and and all sorts of things around that and he he has an absolute go at the teach like a champion thing interestingly there there are other authors as well who who don't like some of the behavior management aspects of teach like a champion and suggest that there well i mean some people have gone as far as to call it a racist pedagogy which i know doug lemoff would would reject um but it's an interesting article i would take issue because as we know i'm now a sociology geek i would take issue i think with ian cushing's characterization of uh, the work of basil bernstein he describes basil bernstein's work as having uh, as being lingering work from the 1960s which has been repeatedly critiqued and dismissed by sociolinguists as harbouring deficit, classist and racist stances on language. And I know that there are authors who have put an extremely opposing view of that and suggested that that's a a misreading of what Bernstein was actually saying and that actually it harmed Bernstein's career that he he used certain terms for things, which perhaps was a really bad idea. But as a way of maybe thinking afresh about some of this stuff, which, as I said, is now getting so accepted that it's starting to appear as kind of tick boxes on observation forms and all that sort of thing, while I wouldn't agree with all of it, and while I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm always a bit a bit uncomfortable when I see an article which is not kind of lovely and neutral and balanced and is really going hammer and tongs at something. I did find it refreshing just because there are so many voices kind of saying this is a good thing and it's always good to hear somebody on the other side. It is. It absolutely is. And it, it, it makes me think, as ever, of that thing that um, Professor David James Oh, yes. Said. The uh, pre-constructed is everywhere. The pre-constructed yes. is everywhere. I mean, Doug Lemoff, I, and, and, and I'm showing my own lack of knowledge here. I don't know whether he researched, sort of formally researched, air quotations, outstanding teachers in order to reach the conclusions and the codified practices that appear in Teach Like a Champion or whether he simply sort of purports to have observed so many champion teachers um, across the United States that now give him a sort of a, a clear idea of what the hallmarks are of, of, of effective practice. But he certainly has gained loads of traction. You know, I know that Consortia had him visit and do some professional learning and it went down really well, you know. So I think you're right. I think it, student teachers need to 
be aware of these approaches, but also be given the tools to critique them, to position them in context, to understand how to use them, um, but also to come at it with the learners in front of them in mind in the first instance. I think that stuff that you mentioned about punching the, what was it? Punching, punching the, the error. error. Yeah, yeah. that, that does, I, I, I must admit, this was a bit of a Bible text, <laughs> a bit of a set text or a course reader that um, was given out. I think, I think, I think they bought one for every student teacher on yeah, the teacher. This is happening in schools program. as well. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm uncomfortable with any kind of prescribed. You know, we we have we have required and recommended reading, but you know, as soon as it becomes the rule. And not open to question, critique, discussion, debate, then I, I get very concerned about that. So, yes, that is my long winded way of saying that was interesting. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there've been a lot of critiques of the whole the whole kind of uber disciplinarian Michaela thing, you know, and I know we've talked about this, haven't we? That it's kind of, you know, you, you set the boundaries to get everybody behaving and then what, you know, and it, it's whether you've got an answer to that question. I think what I like about this article is that he goes at it from the language point of view. He said, I'm going to do a little quote here. At the centre of the dense web of disciplinary mechanisms sits standardised English, a racialized and classed social construct which operates under the myth that it is easily identifiable and assessed, as well as being fetishised as superior quality mm. and equated with academic and economic success. I mean, there's a whole two hour seminar right in that sentence. Yeah, it's the same. <laughs> Same sense of sort of discomfort that I think you and I both share when you know we come back to the, 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 the knowledge, the best of what has been thought and said. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah, what yeah, I'm looking yeah. for, and just this idea that you sort of give kids, particularly kids in poverty, the gift of knowledge, and it's going to sort of help them rise above and beyond and get them out of their you know in many instances working class backgrounds you know we talk about this with with and Jess Danum puts it much better than I ever can about you know your roots being something you need to leave behind in order to enter the world of academia and enter the world of of work maybe even or to be successful in education and and you know I take take a lot of umbrage against that idea yeah it's that sort of co-opting of Bourdieu's idea of cultural capital isn't it as a tool of social mobility and yeah give them loads of Wagner and Bach and they'll all become you know multi-millionaires <laughs> yeah yeah it's a bit questionable bit bit ideological for my tastes yeah however there are practitioners out there there are researchers out there who I think are coming at it from a positive stance and, and are really trying to just do their best with the very few tools that they have at their disposal to address such a big issue as poverty and the poverty gap. You know, I've talked about this with David Egan that, you know, as a humble classroom teacher, how much power, how many levers have you got to pull that can help pupils move forward and, and you know, live happy, successful lives that they want for themselves and, and to progress in education if, if that's what they want. One of whom I've got a lot of time for is Alex Quigley, who is the author of the book Closing the Vocabulary Gap. He's also the author of Closing uh, the Reading Gap, I believe. I think the Reading Gap came first. He's an English teacher. He's also director of Huntington Research School, um, which uh, many UK listeners will probably be familiar with. So he makes a case for closing the vocabulary gap, draws upon a lot of research to do that in the early chapters of the book. But what I wanted to home in on was the sort of practical how, how do you do this in, in the classroom? So firstly, what he does, he discusses the challenges that pupils face when they're attempting to work out the meaning of words generally. Um, he draws upon the work of Isabel Beck and colleagues 
book, Bringing Words to Life. He says they exemplify how working out the meaning of words from context clues is deeply problematic. This is especially true for students with a limited vocabulary. Now, we could probably guess why telling your pupils to look it up in the dictionary is not necessarily going to help them. But what he does in this book is he, is he draws upon um, Isabel Beck and colleagues' research to help us understand why. So there are four main types of context related to a new or unknown word. Three of those four in particular do not help pupils understand a word. For example, misdirective context. This is context that are unhelpful and lead children towards an incorrect meaning. For example, the prince was tall, strong and petrified. Here the child is expected to is expecting the word to mean something related to strong and powerful, whereas the writer has playfully reversed this expectation by using the word petrified. Another context that they might encounter an unknown word in is a non-directive context. This is context that offer little help to children. For example, the prince was abject. (laughs) So there's nothing in there that's going to help a pupil understand that word. And then he talks about a fourth one that's a bit more helpful is directive context. Contexts with surrounding descriptions or definition information to make precise meanings clear. For example, an obtuse angle is an angle between 90 and 180 degrees. So he goes on to say that children encounter many texts daily that offer new challenging words, but with little contextual support to independently understand those words. In short, Don't rely on children using a dictionary successfully, nor guess from the context of a sentence or a text. Independent word learning is vital, but sometimes children simply lack the requisite knowledge, so explicit vocabulary teaching is required to support the learning. And then he introduces this model, uh, the SEEC model, to ensure children develop the necessary understanding of important words. SEEC is an acronym for SELECT, explain, explore and consolidate. And he does make the point that some words will need in-depth exploration, whereas others will require explaining and future consolidation. So you can sort of use that SEEC structure in the way that best suits what you're trying to achieve. There we go. I think we've solved social justice there, haven't we, <laughs> between the two of us? Uh, it's been a, we're all, it's all fixed now. Shut the back cave down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, definitely wasn't a light episode, was it? I haven't even finished yet. Oh, you haven't? Left. You've still got one. Look There's at me, I'm left. closing my laptop down, yeah, going, yeah, right, job fine. done. Your job's done. <laughs> I've got one left, uh, which is nothing to do with social justice, I don't think, particularly, or education, actually, okay. uh, as is my want. Uh, it's in my occasional strand, which I provisionally entitled Social Media is Going to Bring About the Apocalypse, which I think I've... <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a strand. There's a strand in my. It's not uh, just a strand. My, it's well, like a no. pillar. <laughs> yeah, it's a pillar of pillar of our existence. So this is something completely different. We've given you a load of really heavy stuff. I mean, it's not super duper light, but it's kind of a bit thought provoking, I suppose, um, and just gets us thinking a little bit. So, um, I suppose many of our listeners will have been, you know, idly scrolling through some of what I will call the less highbrow news websites out there in the world. And there will be stories about, oh, you know, this person's act of kindness will, you know, I don't know. What do they always say? They always have these awful clickbaity things they say, don't they? You know, this be kind, heartwarming <laughs> video will, I don't know, make you cry or something. And it'll be some <laughs> random act of kindness in a supermarket somewhere. Or oh, something random like acts of that, kindness. You know? They're a thing, aren't they? Yeah, so I spotted this article in The Guardian at the end of January and the headline is They filmed me without my consent, the ugly side of hashtag kindness videos. So uh, here we go. Uh, Marie only wanted to buy some shoes. A pair that she liked the look of had gone on sale, so she made a trip into the city to try them on. It was late in the day in June, midwinter in Melbourne, and the shopping centre was quiet. After making her purchase, Marie stopped for a coffee and that's when it happened, she said. A young man approached her holding a posy of flowers. He asked Marie to hold them for him as he put on his jacket. I wish I trusted my instincts and said no, she says. It was all so quick. Marie took the flowers, then the man walked away wishing her a lovely day. She held them out after him, bemused. Then Marie noticed two men operating a camera on a tripod a few feet away. 
I said, did you film that? And they denied it, said Murray. I even said to them, do you want these flowers? I don't want them. They just looked stunned. Mary went home with her new shoes and the flowers. That evening, her partner received a text from a friend with teenage children. Mary was in a video going viral on TikTok. Not active on social media, Mary didn't think anything of it. I thought, who watches these TikToks anyway? Oh well. I didn't even know what viral meant. She paid the video no mind until she saw an article about the interaction in the Daily Mail. The man who'd handed the flowers to Mary was Harrison Pavluk, a 22-year-old TikToker with a following of millions for his random acts of kindness, in inverted commas. Among videos showing him offering hugs to strangers and paying for people's groceries, Pavluk had posted the clip of Mary with the caption, I hope this made her day better with a red heart emoji and the hashtag wholesome. <laughs> in a little over a week, it had garnered 52 million views and 10 million likes. I'm not crying, you are, was one representative comment. <laughs> Such feel-good content has long been a feature of the social web, dating back to the first days of BuzzFeed and Upworthy, but since the switch to video, these stories of the kindness of strangers have taken on the form of stunts and social experiments. On TikTok, the hashtag random acts of kindness has 416 million views, while helping others has nearly 850 million. Though not exclusively stunts, kindness, wholesome and positivity are well into the billions. After the video went viral from Pavlik's profile, the male published a story about his heartwarming gesture, declaring that the woman, Mary, had been moved to tears. But Mary did not recognise herself as the elderly woman depicted, and she took umbrage with the assumption that Pavlik's intrusion on her day had been welcome. That was just cruel, I thought, to do that to a person. The whole pathetic scenario. I'm in my 60s, I've got grey hair, but it kind of upset my sense of how I'm perceived. I'd never really thought of myself as looking old, she says. She had to act for her own sense of self. In mid-July, she shared, shared her experience on air with ABC Radio Melbourne's Virginia Trioli, saying she felt dehumanised by the interaction with Pavluk. He interrupted my quiet time, filmed and uploaded a video without my consent, turning it into something it wasn't. And I feel like he's making quite a lot of money through it. I feel like clickbait. Marie had come forward because she wanted to warn others, she said. If it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. And then I'm going to abridge the rest and whip through. Pavlok has more than three million followers, earning him a reported monthly income of between five and a half and eight and a half thousand pounds. He is studying for a double degree in design and business, but only to please his mum, he says over a video call from his bedroom in Melbourne. Being a video creator is my ultimate purpose. It can easily veer into exploitation. A striking proportion of kindness videos feature people who are living in poverty, oh, there we are again, or otherwise marginalised and as such assumed to be grateful beneficiaries. In July, an Afghan asylum seeker said he was traumatised by another Australian TikToker swooping in while he was in the supermarket to pay his groceries. In the name of spreading kindness, some content creators even pose as homeless to shame passers-by for not giving. There's little incentive for platforms to remove material on request or act in accordance with the standards expected of traditional publishers. As I drop my paper, here we go. As more people experience being made into fodder, it seems likely there will be a cultural shift, although whether it's towards protecting our privacy or casting off what remains of it is yet to be seen. Greater literacy and robust social etiquette could evolve around posting online in the same way as mostly observed oversharing pictures of children. Children. Six months on, Marie remains ambivalent about her brush with the internet, but no longer bruised. I've weathered my particular storm, she says. She even seems tickled by how far her point travelled, with some comments in support gaining two million likes, not just for sticking up for me, but for the idea that we shouldn't be treating people in this way. That was very heartening, she says. But she remains critical of Pavlok. I think it's pretty shabby, really. Maybe I'm old fashioned, but a lot of people don't seem to get that it's about making money, not being kind. So true. Well done. Great article. He encroached on Mary's yeah. quiet time. That's what stood out for me. My quiet How time, damn it, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, occasionally I spot on these websites these headlines that are like, oh, this video of this act of kindness will melt your heart. And I never click on them. But I always assumed it's because I'm a nasty, cynical person. But now I feel pleased I didn't click on them. Mm, I think it this would make for some really interesting debate. I always come back to secondary, but I'd love to know what people think of this because, you know, it's looking beneath the obvious, like challenging what's really going on here and, and what you're saying about the people who you're just unsolicited, unsolicitedly, that's not even a word, you know, 
foistering yourself on on somebody else yeah and pretending to be doing all this kind stuff i mean it's a shame we haven't made a video version of this podcast because only you could see me doing a full body cringe as i was reading those hashtags out. oh <laughs> yeah it was visceral like it you could see me shriveling up in my chair but no it's awful isn't it all this kind of oh be kind stuff and often it's mm. the be kind brigade that the least kind of all yeah totally sinister. yeah it is narcissism and and they won't see that like pavlik won't won't see that at all it's the narcissism of having to make it all kind of public isn't it it's very strange yeah it's this thing that they feel they have to go and seek out some grateful poor person or old person or refugee and then turn themselves into some kind of weird superhero it's it's narcissistic and frankly weird it is it is weird poor mary she was just buying a pair of shoes there she was quiet melbourne supermarket what's he doing in a quiet melbourne supermarket he's certainly not studying for his double degree is he get your assignments done sort it out pavlik <laughs> don't come to us for an extension no. when you're too busy making videos yeah well there we go all that hashtag nonsense it's <laughs> gonna bring about the end of the world you mark my words <laughs> must be because i'm not this visual type you see it never occurs to me to film myself <laughs> make a <laughs> podcast about it now there we are now we're talking <laughs> Well, there you have it. Six things, not necessarily light. (laughs) No, really quite a strange one, wasn't it? But never mind, hope it's wild away a few hours. Enjoy (laughs) the rest of your Easter break. Well deserved. We will look forward to our Easter break from uh, this distance that we've still got to travel to get there. Um, But we wish you the very best and we'll be back with you in two weeks. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. We hope we gave you some interesting things to think about while you're having a restful Easter break. Not you, Pavlook. Put the camera down and hashtag get your assignments done. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod if you want to come and be kind. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.